Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get started today, I want to remind my listeners that they can find all information about myself and the podcast at felix-levine.com. There you can find all previous episodes in both video and audio formats, as well as pictures from every recording and contact information if you are a sponsor or a fan that is looking to get in touch with me. All of that information is handy on my website, felix-levine.com. I also want to remind you guys that you can find all clips and full episodes in those video versions on YouTube as well. Uh, Search my name, Felix Levine, on YouTube, and you will find my channel. I please urge you to subscribe as well, and there you will find all content as it comes out every single week. I also want to give a huge shout out to my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. In today's world, eating healthy takes a lot of effort. Walk through the grocery store aisles and you are surrounded with processed foods, chemical additives, preservatives, fillers, flavorings, all that bad stuff. Is it any wonder Americans are facing growing health concerns? Well, my friends over here at U.S. Wellness Meats, they offer all natural foods sustainably raised on family farms and they'll ship right to your door for absolutely free. 100% grass-fed beef, lamb and bison, wild-caught seafood, pasture-raised pork, and free-range poultry are just some of the foods available at U.S. Wellness Meats. The owners are the farmers themselves, and they are the choice of championship sports teams, professional athletes, trainers, and families just like yours all over America. No need to sacrifice flavor for good nutrition because their foods are nutritious and delicious. Use promo code PODCAST to save 15% off your next order at uswellnessmeats.com today. I also want to give a huge shout out to Odd Socks. At Odd Socks, they urge you to stand out and be odd. They offer some of the best quality socks in the game at the most affordable prices. They offer socks with all of your favorite athletes, actors, cartoon characters, and even ones with different foods and beverages imprinted on them. If you're feeling classy, I also urge you to take a look at their Basics line, which feature premium stylish socks at a very affordable price. Go to oddsocksofficial.com, that's O-D-D-S-O-X, official.com today, and use promo code WTG20, and you will receive 20% off your next order. And even better yet, on orders of $50 or more, you will also get free shipping. So order $50 or more of socks, and you will get 20% off and free shipping. Go check it out today. And my next guest. He is a co-host of the Oops podcast with Giulio Gallarotti, and he is an absolutely fantastic comedian. I am super excited to have him in the studio today. Please welcome Francis Ellis. Boom. And we're live. Francis Ellis, sir. Thank Felix you. Felix Levine. Thank you for coming on today. I'm so pleased to be here. This is fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, as I told you a few seconds ago, I like to ask my guests if there's a little, little something, little tidbit, little story, little anything that the world may not already know about Francis Ellis. Sure. Um, I, uh, I had a nanny when I was three. Her name was Georgie. Okay. But I don't know if that was short for Georgina. I don't know what the deal was. She was British and she was she was a white nanny. Mm. 
And uh, we we harbored her illegally. She was an illegal immigrant. Wow. She was my nanny for years. Georgie. Yeah. And now she's married an American guy and she's become a naturalized citizen, right? Do you still talk to her? Well, we do keep in touch. Not that often, but, uh, you know, her kids are all grown up. But, it, you know, I just wanted to let everyone know I'm sorry for harboring an illegal immigrant <laughs> and, provi- and for my parents providing work for them. Wow. But we I- loved her. She was fantastic. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. I love, that's actually a good. I, I like that one. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know that about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, want to get into it more, maybe uh, in a chronological sense, um, for maybe people who are not familiar with you and your story. Yeah. Um, maybe give us a little little brief background on on uh, life growing up. What was Francis like growing up? Hmm. I grew up in Maine. Hmm. You know Maine? I do know Maine. Not many people know Maine. I mean, like I know Maine. I've been there once, so I don't. I can't say I know no Maine. Everyone thinks of Maine and they think of preppy sailboat camps and boat shoes it's and a lot of water stuff like that. And that's not really Maine. Hmm. Heroin's a big problem in Maine. So what's Maine Opiates. really? Other than that, what's Maine really like? Uh, well, it's pristine. It's gorgeous. It's one of those places that very wealthy people will flock to once. Rising sea levels make the lowlands uninhabitable. Did you enjoy growing up in Maine? I did. I loved it. Yeah, I really did. As I've grown older, I've grown more appreciative of the fact that I grew up there. It's unique. Yeah. As a little boy growing up, did you think uh, comedy was in the books for you? No, not at all. In the cards? I didn't think about that at all. You know, I I love stand-up comedy. And I used to listen to, this is what I tell people is that when all my friends, when Napster came out, all my friends were, we were on AOL Instant Messenger downloading music illegally. And I was downloading comedy illegally. I was listening to Eddie Murphy, Lewis Black, Jerry Seinfeld, Richard Pryor, and George Carlin on Napster. And uh, I knew all the words to all their albums. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that might have been a very telling uh, signal of where I was going to end huh. up. And so at what point, when, do you remember like the first time you thought, hey, I'm maybe kind of funny? Well, I always tried to be funny. Were you a class clown? But I don't think anyone would have accredited me with that. I was outspoken. I was gregarious. I don't think... Uh, I was, but I had my shit together. Can we swear on this podcast? You can, you can yeah. swear as much. Uh, I had my shit together that I don't think enough people, I don't think anyone would have called me a class clown. Hmm. I wasn't like, you know, falling out of my chair in science class or pulling dumb faces or something. Right. But I, I was disruptive. I was very energetic, hyper at times, and I just needed outlets. And so... Most of the time that was sports, but sometimes I would I would perform on stages. What did you think that you would end up doing? What was the dream job when you were a young? You know, young- it morphed. Like when I was five, I wanted to be a fireman. But then 9-11 happened and I got scared. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's fucked. <laughs> <No. laughs> you can become aware of the risks. No, uh, no I... I um, I grew up, you know, yeah, a professional athlete. I wanted to be in the NBA. I used to think that if I sank the last 10 jumpers on my court, 
uh, in a row, I wouldn't I wouldn't let myself go in until I'd made ten shots in a row. But some days, unfortunately, that that yeah. meant that I had to shoot layups because. <laughs> You know, otherwise I'd be out there all night. But I, I, we had lights on the court. I used to go out and shoot all the time. And then, unfortunately, it was just a lot easier to be good at lacrosse, even though I didn't like lacrosse that much. So I used that to get into college. And then I went to college. And when, and when I was in high school and in college, I always thought that I needed to go work for Goldman Sachs. Oh, I had you're, this, you're one of those. Well, I just had the, <laughs> I had it in my brain that that right. being a, a sa- in sales and trading at Goldman Sachs was uh, my destiny. What did your parents do? My mom was in academia. She was a professor of French literature, uh, but but stopped that. I don't know when I was five or six. Now I have something to tell you because I I was listening to you on Andrew Collin. Oh, Puddles? On Puddles. Yeah. Funny guy. Funny guy. He's yeah. uh he cracks me up. Um but I know the the big one of the big themes was uh France, French, all that. I hear you're fluent. I'm fluent in French too. Are you really? We could we could technically do this in French, but we won't. I feel like that would disenchant some of your lo- listeners. I feel like it would most except for me and my mom. But, but Felix we, Felix is a very French name. Well, so my mom is French. Okay. She's Parisian. Um What's her last name? Or maiden name? Ikovich, which is like Polish because her, oh, okay. her dad is from Poland. Got it. Um, but uh, but yeah, she she grew up in France, uh, Parisian. So we, I don't know, your mom's not French. No. She, but she's fluent. Oh my God, a, a thousand times over. And, and, and not only that, but, you know, could, could t- present Immanuel Kant's philosophies in French. I wow. mean, that, that was yeah, the yeah. level. It was so academic and so... She wrote, you know, a 250-page doctoral thesis on <laughs> philosophy in, the, in, in yeah. you know, I don't even know, comparative literature. It was insane. It's something I would never understand even in English. So, yeah, she's, she speaks very well. She speaks very high-minded French, too. Do you still do you ever have a chance to speak now? Well, she and I never really spoke. And I think that was because there was a, a gulf between the way that she knew French and the way that I learned it, which was, you know, I was, I wanted to learn French because of her influence, but I went over to a soccer camp when I was young in Bordeaux and it was put on by the the team there, the Girondins de Bordeaux. And uh, we would, I would go every summer and when this was like when I was probably nine or 10 and Within a couple of years, I was I was pretty fluent. Do you still go back? When was the last time you were in France? I was there this past summer with my girlfriend. Where'd you guys go? Uh, we would, we went to Annecy, which is uh, not far from you know the Alps. It's like within the Alps, kind of. Uh, and uh, we stayed on the lake there. It's really beautiful. It's a nice place. Have you been? I mean, do you like the South often? So I, I mean, studied. Yeah. I did a semester at Sciences Po. In oh, wow. uh, in Monton, my, mom, my mom's going to be jumping in her. There in you her, go. In her yeah. seat when she hears this. There was a Middle Eastern Studies satellite campus of Sciences Po in Monton, which is the last town on the French Italian border. I have a friend that goes there actually. Really? Yeah, man. It in was, in that in Monton. Yeah, it yeah. was a cool. It was a cool town and a cool program. It was also very different from the study abroad programs that my friends did. Right. All my friends went to like Florence, Italy, and Rome, and they did the like Fairfield University program, and they didn't have to do any right. homework mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. And my school was hard. I mean, it was, I didn't really get any kind of 
break <laughs> yeah. from what I had left at Harvard. So it was, I don't know. It was fun, but. So then you, so basically lacrosse is like your big thing growing up. I mean, high well, level lacrosse player. So soccer and lacrosse were the two that I uh, played a lot. How good was I? I was, I was good. I, mean, I was uh, one, out of high school as one of the top 100 players in the country. Okay, you're, you're, uh, well, you yeah, can I, I got, um, you know, I got scholarship offers from Hopkins and uh, all, you know, all the, all the D1 schools, all the Ivies. They, they didn't, the Ivies don't offer athletic scholarships, but I had, you know, the choice basically to go where I wanted. And because of honestly, I don't even know that much about lacrosse or professional lacrosse professional lacrosse exists it does but, but it's in not. its infancy right. I, I think uh they've had the major league lacrosse for years but now there's this big transition towards a new league that has sprung up um thanks to paul rabel who is widely considered the best player in the world but you know you're not making a living there's like a handful of guys who make a living in, in lacrosse due to sponsorships and stuff. So but that was never in. I had no interest. Yeah, no. no interest. And but, I don't. Nor nor would I necessarily have been good enough. I by the time I was a senior, I didn't really care anymore. Right. So then, straight out of college, I know. I don't know if it's. I think you talked about it on puddles with uh, with Andrew, but um, you had a big tutoring business. Yeah, that all formed pretty organically. I moved to New York to get into comedy. I didn't. I had. I had hoped to get um, Teach for America. I wanted to do that. Okay. Do, you, do you know Teach for America? I don't. Teach for America is this very cool program um, where basically you go to some place in America and you teach at a, at a, a school that has a big need for teachers. Okay. You know, so it's like high at risk kids. A lot of the the highest need areas are always in the Mississippi Delta area. Um, and you go and you teach for two years. And then while you're doing that, you get your master's degree. But then coming out of that, you've set yourself up for, you know, a lot of kids go to top law schools from there or business school, whatever it may be. And um, I thought that that would be a very good thing to do. And I was excited about it, but I ended up not getting the job and I thought I would. So once that fell through, that was late my senior year. I had not applied to to try to do any of the jobs that my friends were doing. They all had jobs in banking and in, in trading and stuff. So I moved to New York with the idea that I would get into comedy. Hmm. And it was a sort of a spur of the moment decision. And at every turn, there were so many times where a life event could have taken me away from it and taken me in another direction. But life failed me towards comedy. At every turn. Do you, do you, oh, well, okay. But I like, okay. So at one point, two years in, I was sick of doing open mics in the Lower East Side for six other comedians and, you know, signing up last and having to sit through the drudgery and the self flagellation that everyone was. You're trying. how old at this point? I was 23, 24. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was a contest to see who could tell the saddest story. And I, I didn't like that. It was, it was crushing. And so uh, eventually I was like, all right, this isn't working out. And I had done improv at UCB. I'd done all that stuff. And so I decided I needed to go to law school and start taking my life seriously. And I applied. I got a job at the DA's office okay. as a paralegal, which was pretty cool, but it was, the work was really boring. Um, and then got into Fordham, but I got rejected at the top 
15 law schools. And had I gotten, I had pretty good LSAT scores. I had a decent GPA at Harvard. I, I thought for sure I you know, would have a chance. Nope, flat out rejected. And had I gotten into any single one of those schools, I certainly would have gone and I'm sure I would have stayed. Hmm. You know, you, you can't, whereas like Fordham, which I think was like the 25th on the list, was, I, it was local. I went for four days, was so torn and saw what my life would be like if I stayed in law school, had no idea why I was doing what I was doing all of a sudden and withdrew on the last night before I had to pay. Four days in. Yeah, the first night of tuition. And what are your, I mean, you know, you're, you're a smart guy. You go to Harvard. What are your parents thinking at that point? Like, like are they, are you know, they worried? Are my, they... my parents were always super supportive of whatever I was kind of voicing to them. Mm. And I think they had a faith that I would sort it out for myself. The harder thing was my very serious girlfriend at the time, her parents really wanted me to go to law school. Uh... And so you start to feel like you're appeasing these people then you start resenting them, and it, you know it was very hard to make an unbiased decision. But in the end, I withdrew, and to this day, it is by far the best decision I've ever made <laughs> in my life. Yeah. I, I was so not ready to be a lawyer, um, but I am glad that I got to glimpse like what that education would have been, and uh, and then also to have the the balls to like get out of it before it was too late. And then immediately I started tutoring, you know, more and more. I built my small tutoring business, got and really into stand-up at that point, got passed for late night at the comic strip. I was there four nights a week, you know, and all of a sudden I was doing like 10 shows a week. Wow. Most, not, not, not really mics anymore, more like a little bit up from that. And that's when I did that for a couple years. I was making a good living tutoring. And my days were full and happy. And then I got the barstool thing. So you're, you're working tutoring during the day and comedy at night? It's kind of, well, like it was a little, you know, because tutoring during the week, you could only really do it after school. Right. So I would tutor typically from like 4 to 7 or 8 p.m. and then schedule shows around that. But I was doing comedy quite late. You know, I was doing shows until... 12 31 in the morning most did nights. you ever have doubts that the comedy thing was not going to work out for sure but it didn't matter mm. because i was making good money tutoring i could have you know i was in that in that those years i was making like 115 130,000 a year tutoring and i enjoyed it yeah. so why did i have to make a change i was paying my rent i was even saving a little bit of money uh I was able to travel. I had a lot of time off in the summers. I mean, it was it was a great life and there was no sense that I was like losing time. I think I think we are you, how old are you? How old do you think I am? I would say like 28. Really? Yeah. I'm 20. Come on. I swear to God. I just turned 20 a few weeks ago. That's amazing. Are you in school? I am in school. Where do you go? Boston University. No way. Okay, so that's you come back and forth? I come back and forth. My, my co-host. I'm, I'm honored that you said 28th. I'm flattered. <laughs> I never know. With guys, you never know. Yeah, it, I get a range. I get a yeah. range. But yeah, no. Uh, so I was going to say people of our generation, but I don't even think we're in, in the same generation. Are you Gen Z? Uh, 
I, I guess. What, what, I don't know what the I'm cutoff two, is. I'm 2000. Right. Wow. What is that? Josh, I'm, any idea? That's probably Gen Z. Gen Z yeah. yeah. Whereas I'm, I'm a millennial. Yeah. Right. So I would say that the, at least in the millennials, there was this thought that spread of, of needing immediate grat- gratification, right? Right. I think it was probably spurred by our phones and all that shit. But what it meant was that in our parents' generation, uh, the, the 20s were seen as a time of exploration mm. and being okay to try a job and not like it and switch career paths and, you know, to fail and all of this. Whereas now we feel like we need to, the first job we get out of college, that's right. the job. And then we need to make X amount and climb the ladder. And there, you know, by the time you're 30, you've got your 401k set and your, <laughs> you know, your wife picked out and you know what you're going to live and all you belong to a golf course and all. Who knows? It's different for everyone. But I maintained an open mindedness in my 20s that my life would kind of push me in different directions. And the thing that in the end, the boat sort of narrowed its course in comedy. Mm. And so while those, that period of tutoring and comedy was uncertain, I didn't have, I wasn't asking big, difficult questions. I wasn't strung out over uncertainty. And sure enough, you know, when you're doing going about it the right way, good things tend to happen. Is my experience. How different was your your joke writing process and your comedy process back when you were like starting it out to what it, as it is today? Is it different? Do oh, you- totally. Yeah. I mean, you write jokes in when you're starting out be- based on the what you hear. Mm-hmm. You know, I would hear other comedians that I liked doing jokes, and I would try to write jokes like them. And now. You you turn a corner into the personal, you know, the painful. You mine your insecurities and and the things that only you know. And, and I think that is when it becomes a lot more interesting. Hmm. Are you a pen to paper kind of person? Not really. Not really. You know, I always jot down ideas I have in my phone. But the reality is probably most of the best jokes I've ever come up with have been me just letting my mind unravel on stage. Hmm. And then I go back and listen and, and pick up the pieces that worked. How do you describe your brand of comedy? Um, boy, I don't know. That's hard. Personal, certainly. I, I noticed a, a lot of, I used a lot of I in my act. Uh, it's less, it's not that observational. I use stories as a springboard to kind of explore themes that are more universal, but I'm typically the protagonist or the antagonist in most of my jokes. And so so you're doing this for how many years are you doing comedy and, and tutoring before you get into to the whole barstool thing? Um, well, I had been tutoring since the day I moved to New York, but I would say that I start the clock on being a real comedian going about it the right way, probably three years before I started working at Barstool. Okay. Although, you know, I'd really been doing, I'd done at least five years of comedy. Because I think I started working Barstool in 2016. 
and I graduated in 2011. So yeah, five years. Um, and then I got the Barstool thing. I, I responded to a, an, a, a call for applications for this Barstool Idol contest that they were putting together. And I had no idea what it was going to be or you know, what stood at the other end of it. And I ended up getting selected to come audition. I auditioned. The poor guy, who, who I still know to this day, Rich, went before me and had an, a, a, did not have a good set. And so then by comparison, they said I looked better. <laughs> and uh, I got passed in and then I ended up winning the whole contest. So I won a job. And that was crazy because I didn't, I, I won that on a Friday. And then they were like, all right, you start Monday. Wow. And I was like, well, I've kind of been, that whole week I was kind of like calling in sick to the well, kids I, know, I was doing. I know doing. you also had a, I mean, you talk about, oh, well, that's separate, but also, um, there's a whole story with... Uh, oh, yeah, the, the cancer <laughs> thing. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. Uh, that was a crazy week. But but just to, I had to put, you know, I had to like pass the kids off immediately that I had built these relationships with and their parents for years and be like, uh, sorry, guys, I have a new full-time job. I can't work with your kids anymore. And that was, you know, a major life-altering right. change. What did what happened to that company? Did you hand it off to someone? Is it just kind of disintegrate? You know, I had a few tutors working for me, um, kind of part time, and I just gave I like bulked up their course load, and so just gave some of my kids off to them. And I don't know. I, in in name, the company might still be afloat, but I I don't know. I it was never something I could. It was too nebulous for me to try to package it and sell it. But it did what it, it served its purpose. It was. Sustained me for five years in in New York. Now, will you? I mean, I heard the 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 cancer scare story. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Because Would I listened you, to puddles. Oh, okay, okay. So you know the real version. I, I know the real version. Yeah. For for people who didn't listen to that, will you give maybe like a, a quick summary just so they yeah. know what we're talking about? There's a um, there's a a dr- dramatized story out there that I faked cancer to get a job at Barstool. And this story was propagated by Dave Portnoy, who who thought it would be far funnier to tell it that way than the truth, which was that on the Wednesday of that week, while I was at Barstool, you know, trying to win that contest, I had had a throat surgery about a month and a half before I went in there to remove polyps from my vocal cords. I'd been hoarse for like a month or a year, a year and a half very common uh, procedure and they took them out and then they, whenever they take something out of your body in surgery, they biopsy it. It's like they're, that's what they always do. And they took it to the labs at Mount Sinai Hospital and during that week at Barstool, I got a call in the middle of the day from my doctor, the throat doctor, Dr. Peek Wu is his name. And he he said, uh, I need you to come into the office immediately and I was like, all right. So I snuck out of the off of Barstool at lunch, went up to Mount Sinai, and he said, I've got some kind of scary news. We biopsied the polyps, and they came back as showing signs of cancerous malignancies. And it, it is looking like they are tumors as opposed to polyps, which we thought they were. So we need to start doing tests to see if this is metastasized where it is, et cetera. And that was like a, tough 
I mean, yeah. to here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was 26 or 27 and I was in very good health. And uh, my dad had, has had a couple bouts with prostate cancer. Um, and to, to, for a young person to hear yeah. that the cancer tra- is like fucking terrifying. Um, so I then got back on the subway and I came back to Barstool and I had to run right into a, uh, a, a test radio segment with KFC. But before I did that, I called my parents and started crying <laughs> and let them know, you know, what I had just heard. And, uh, and they were like that, you know, we're going to figure this out. Don't freak out yet. But when I walked in to see Kevin, he could tell immediately that I was pretty shaken. And, uh, he was like, are you all right? And I was like, dude, I don't know. I just got some crazy news. And he goes, you're not about to tell me that you have cancer, are you? And I was like, well, kind of i don't know this is on radio or like yeah it was a t- it was a, it wasn't live it okay, was a it was, test okay, radio okay. segment to see how good we would be the contestants would be at radio and uh he was just floored by this and then i told him what had happened and then like later that day they aired that clip as they were choosing about you know who would advance and who would get voted off but meanwhile, by the, this was the Wednesday, I think, of the, of the week. And every day they were voting someone off. And by this point, I had distinguished myself. I, I was, you know, writing blogs well. I was making funny clips. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but by that point, I would say it was kind of a foregone conclusion that okay. I was going to win. Um, so Dave was like, Jesus Christ, you know, on the one hand... Like, I don't know if I can prevent myself from not making fun of you for having cancer, but I don't want to like, you know, whatever. So they, they kept me through and then I ended up winning. And then while, you know, all of this was happening, they had sent the polyps from the lab to other labs. And then they sent the samples to a clinic in San Francisco where there was like a, I think there was like some kind of conference of cancer doctors who were meeting. And the idea was that some of them would take a look at it or something. But we also got our friends in Maine, who we have a cancer doctor friend in Maine, to get involved and to start, you know, talking to them. And he was saying to my parents, like, this is really unusual that the doctor would have removed it from his throat and not been able to tell right off the bat. And then my doctor, Peak Wu, was like, yeah, when I took it out, I've been doing this for 30 years. You know, it it, it really surprised me that these came back as cancerous malignancies right. because to me, they looked exactly like polyps. And so all of this is going on. And, you know, every, I, I like start making content about cancer, you know, <laughs> and then, and like, just like jokes and whatever. And then three weeks later, I get a call while I'm at the office from peak Wu's office and they said we ran a dna test after they'd come back from san francisco and stuff where the sample that we took out had female dna so it turns out that sample didn't even belong to me and it had been switched in the lab in mount sinai with a sample that belonged to a woman and then 
They couldn't find my sample. They never found it. They never found it. So like there was no, there was no way to really say definitively that I didn't have it. But they said, um, I, th- I think that's the case. Honestly, I didn't even fucking clear that up. But I just know that what was crazy was, because everyone was like, you should sue the doctor's office for, for switching it up. And I was like, well, I don't want to sue a person for telling me I don't have cancer. <laughs> that seems like bad karma. But the crazy part was the woman- Yeah, poor woman. Either was told, like, let's say that she'd had cancer and then was told- Great news. You're clean. It's a miracle. We don't know what happened. And then a month later found out like, ah, we were wrong. We gave the wrong sample to the wrong person. You still have it. Or she didn't have cancer and then found out a month later than she should have that she had cancer. In either case, she's the one who should be suing. Do you, you know ever what I'm find out? Did you ever find out what happened with her? No, 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 for sure not. I mean, you know, it's Jeez. all yeah, it's Hippocratic like, oath yeah. shit or whatever. Wow. So, um, unfortunately, like, yeah, the, all that came out and I was pretty like overwhelmed and thrilled and couldn't believe that I'd just kind of been given a clean bill of health. And then within 30 seconds, Nate had run to blog that I had faked cancer. And then Dave got on the radio and turned that into a big story. And, you know, all of a sudden at bar, I became the guy who, you know, and to this day, these idiots, these idiots, Idiots. Because I, I had to, I, I like blogged the story and I included the biopsy report right. from Mount Sinai Hospital with the proper names of the doctors. And and I, I think I even audio clipped the voicemail that I had from the doctor. And it's like these people are just fucking conspiracy theorists. But that, I mean, I, Barstool, I have my, my, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to say it. I think, Portnoy has done a great job with what he his goal his goal of creating that company and and it's gotten to a point where it is it is huge but yeah. I think that um and there's so many different like characters there that I enjoy you know like the Marty Mush or like I like you know like characters like that they're they're funny but I think it's in situations like this where you need almost like just a little bit of seriousness or a little bit of like let's not make a whole story out of it that it almost like, you just like, come on guys. Let's- uh, you know, it's tough. I don't think you can pick and choose. I don't mm. think you can ask them to be sincere or not. You know, it, It's either all or nothing when you're there. And that mm. was always the case. Like I always knew that. I learned that very early on. Um, so I don't, I certainly don't blame Dave or Nate for writing the story the way that they did. That's right. not what bothered me. What bothers me is that to this day, you know, some of these trolls on the internet, I think they actually believe that I faked cancer. Right. And it's just anno- it's, it's just kind of annoying. You know what I mean? No, I would understand why that's annoying. Like, it's such a, re- it's such a bad thing to, for someone to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, you know... I, I guess that's that's what bothers me. It doesn't even it doesn't really bother me. It doesn't follow me that much. But that was um, especially when you start off like that. that was trial by fire, and then I got in trouble for DMing a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. <laughs> I mean, dude, I, I actually didn't hear about this in the first month that I was there. Like, 
What 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 was I actually? Am I tried to. With this. I, I I like packed up my stuff and walked out <laughs> with the intention of quitting two or three times. Big cat stopped me every time. <laughs> what was that? What was the DM of the the Instagram model? I, the, the Sports Illustrated model. There were three Sports Illustrated swimsuit models who came in for for a day of you know public yeah. public whatever to publicize stuff, and. I I did a segment with them that I was doing at the time called the Saturday Sit Down. It was just an interview with me and all three of them, and it was Lais Ribeiro, Kelsey Gale, and Danielle Harrington. And Danielle was sitting next to me on the couch, and I was kind of like, probably flirting, trying to flirt <laughs> a little bit, you know, whatever, just having a great time among these incredibly beautiful women. And uh, I I kind of felt like Danielle. Was it, you know, maybe there was like a chance I could, <laughs> certainly not the other two, but the, with her, I knew she was There's single a slim and, and she was, whatever. So afterwards I went up to Kelly Gale and I was like, Hey, is, uh, is Danielle single? And she was like, I don't know why do you want me to find out? And I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, Kelly Gale. And she goes, all right, well, let me take your number. And then she took my number down and then was like, I'll let you know, we're going to Houston tonight or whatever. And then they went down to Houston for this like Super Bowl party. And Dave went with them. And while they were in Houston, uh, what, I think one of the women came up to Dave and was like, did you know that your employee Francis kind of has a crush on my friend Danielle? And Dave was like, what? And he was, and she was like, yeah, he's trying to like ask her out or something. Oh, geez. And so then they started like, I think they started messing with me a little bit. They were like, you should DM her. And I was like, ah, this feels like a trap. They were like, no, trust me. She's so into that. And so I was like, all right, it still feels like a trap. So I'm just going to send something very not weird. I said, I sent her DM saying, uh, hey, it was great working with you. When you're back in New York, let's go boxing sometime. Because she had mentioned she liked okay. working out okay. with boxing classes. And that was all I said. And so like Dave reads this. <laughs> DM and he's like, "Who the fuck does this kid think he is? These girls are the most beautiful women in the world. He's got red hair and he faked cancer." And the girls were like, "What?" <laughs> oh Jesus! And then it turned into this whole like, people were mad at Dave for cock blocking me, <laughs> and I became like a little bit of a cult hero just for a minute of having shot my shot and shoot for the moon and dream big. And Hold up, did she respond? No, no, oh. Danielle never did. But the others, I, I like went back and forth with Kelly Gale, you know, laughing about it. Um, but I have to also say that in my life, asking a girl out like that wasn't some insane Hail Mary. Mm. You know, let me put it this way. It's not that I necessarily thought it would lead to a date, but I also didn't feel like I was taking a shot in the dark. Okay. You know? I mean, there was a reason for you to take that shot. Yeah. You saw the hoop. Dude, and you, you, yes, you, exactly. you set your feet. You, you took the shot. So There was a reason to right. do it. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility, possibility for me that I would ask her out or that she would say yes. But then it blew up. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have, even without that well, interference, I'm not sure it would have materialized, but so what a, is boy your, <laughs> a boy can dream. The next year, Danielle got the cover, by the way. <laughs> when I did, She was like a rookie that year. Wow. And then the next year she got the cover. Huh. It's too funny. Um, so then what, like, I'm also curious because, you know, now, uh, I mean, even in every year, Barstool kind of gets bigger, but... Um, 
you know, people only see what's really on the outside. And they're, I mean, I don't really watch all their stuff. I'm just more curious, like, from someone who was on the inside for a little while. Um, what would you say is like a big misconception about Barstool? I think, you know, it was one of the ones that I had, which was that um, it's a place of, it's like a, you know, a playground. Yeah, that's what it feels. Actually, I don't think that's a misconception. It looks like a playground. I think it, we, I had this idea, especially in the old office. Um, there was, I had this vision that it was just a, a shit show, like a, you know, a place where people went and fucked around and hopefully captured some funny stuff. But the reality is, I mean, Big Cat is one of the hardest working people mm. I've ever met in my life. I, you know, he is relentless about his podcast and putting out feelers to source guests. And, you know, his, his process for how he gets get people on, pardon my take, is like, you know, even if he weren't as successful as he was at this, he he could do whatever PR. I mean, he'd be an incredible publicist. He, he, he's he's just tireless and PFT too. You know, Kevin's very good. Dave Dave is so thirsty to keep creating, right. just relentlessly creative people. And um, there's a huge gulf between the people at the office who kind of skate by under the radar and are just sort of happy to be there mm -hmm. and who are never going to like make a lot of money or blow up versus the people who are successful. You know, you look at like Riggs, right? And Riggs is a buddy of mine from, from Harvard. <clears throat> and I, I would say this, he's a very smart guy. I don't think that he has, you know, tremendous like comedic instincts. I don't think that even he would call himself particularly outwardly funny person and yet he has been so successful because he's very smart and he has harnessed this golf world he's a very good radio host he's a very good organizer and he's a leader and like it shows that you can be successful at barstool without just being the funniest guy there you know what i mean what do you think i mean you know i think dave gets a lot of slack some deserve some maybe not but what do you think makes him um you know so successful. I mean, you know, he's always want he always wants that new content. He's pushing it forward. But as a leader, as a as the you know founder, he's the founder of Barstool. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think uh, is something that you kind of took away from from him as a as a character for for better or for worse as something that positive of you know the yeah. way he works. Well, I mean, first of all, I only really have positive feelings about all of those guys. Um, I walked out of there. You know, the day I got fired, I, I received a text message from every single person that worked at the company, you know, minus a few of the salespeople or whatever, but every single content person saying how sad they were. Um, I had forged good relationships. Even Dave, you know, behind the scenes after he fired me, like reached out and was just seemed genuinely bummed out that he felt he had to do that. Um, so... I I would say Dave what I he what I saw him do you know was he was so he had the courage of his convictions in a way that you don't see often in comedy mm -hmm. um and he just truly believed that uh what he was doing was funny and original and unique I mean you you couldn't it would be very hard to find, go do a pizza review yeah. <laughs> and 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 tape it and then watch it. Right. You will see 
how hard it is right. to make that funny. And yet he does it on a daily basis. Um, he stands by his content. Uh, you know, he doesn't back down when the PC police come knocking. <laughs> um, and I think, I think to push forward and not bend in the face of uh, mounting pressure from um, political correctness and, and, and uh, whatever you want to call it, is uh is it's it's courage i mean in this in this day and age i get i get scared especially now about right. being canceled or being marginalized <laughs> for the wrong tweet and right. he just continues to shoot from the hip and it's pretty impressive we're going to take a quick break we're going to talk about manscaped support for where is this going comes from manscaped i have breaking news for everyone manscaped after 18 months of research has developed the greatest ball hair trimmer ever known to man. Francis, I asked you this before. Is there a, a small little manscaping story that you have for this general public listening? Well, I will say this. One time I trimmed my pubic hair, mm. but then um, I was in the process of it. And then I think I got like a phone call or something. <laughs> and then the girl I was expecting to hook up with came over and we hooked up and like only half... Uh <laughs> One half of my pubes was trimmed. Did you forget to just do the other half, or what? Yeah, yeah. Here? I never, you, you, <laughs> I never, never went finished. back to it. <laughs> and uh, you know, you can't, it's, it's one thing if I had like trimmed a landing strip because then I could have been like, yeah, you know, trying to spice things up. But just half, one half, asymmetrically shaven, shorn. Let me guess, it didn't work out for for a long time. Long no, term. I think we. Yeah, I mean, I don't. If, who knows? I don't even remember who the girl was, but I do remember that happening. And oh, uh, that's a that's a funny thing to try. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even think. I mean, you you just fully forgot. Yeah, it's huh. happened. I think that's happened a couple of times, but that was the only time it's happened where then I actually ended up getting naked in front of someone, <laughs> and then like Wait, did realizing. She comment on it. I don't know. <laughs> she played through. Wow, she's a trooper. She's a real trooper. Yeah. Well. This third-generation Manscaped trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents and, uh, and forgetfulness of uh, shaving your ball hair. Millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. If you use the Lawnmower 2.0, it's an easy transition because it's the same replacement blade with a new and improved skin-safe technology. When I tell you this is premium, I mean absolutely premium. This battery will last up to 90 minutes, so you can take a longer shave. One of the coolest new features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. They've also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. And let's not forget about the charging stand. Show your mower off loud and proud because this is this intelligently designed stand is a rapid charging dock powered by USB. If you're listening to me speak right now, first of all, thank you. And second, you're one of the first people to hear about this life-changing product, and I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. Trim that junk of yours. Get 20% off in free shipping with the code WTG at manscaped.com. That's WTG for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Francis, your balls will thank you. Let's do it. Let's do it. So there's another question that I had. I was actually thinking about asking this off air, but fire it. I'm fire firing. Away. I'm firing it now because because you're a New York comic and you're in this. Uh, you know, I, I mean, at least from from the outside. Sorry, I just hit you on this. All good. All good. <laughs> um, at least from the outside, and it, it seems very much as there's a uh, you know there's the West Coast comics, yeah, East Coast comics, or sure. New York comics. 
Um, and uh, it's a very different group of people. And so you're in this world of New York comics and there's a, a comedian, because you were talking about cancel culture, tweeting things out that are uh, that can get uh, poorly um, taken by a lot of people. Uh, there's a comedian recently. Uh, I know you're Ari Shafir? Ari Shafir. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you're friends with him, not friends with him. Um, and, I, and I just wanted to hear, I mean, you know, I was going to ask you off air, but fuck it, I'm doing it on air. Yeah. Your thoughts on that situation. Man, I thought about this a lot. I want to hear your take. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And we actually talked about it on our podcast and then we cut the segment. And I don't really know why. But here's here's the thing. I, I can't say that I'm friends with Ari. I can say that I'm an admirer of Ari. Okay. You know, we've we've said hi to each he knows who I am. We've said hi to each other, you know, it, it, waiting to go up on stage on the same show. Um the thing the thing that I have the where I've settled on what happened, and if you don't know, Ari Shafir, moments after the Kobe Bryant news broke, tweeted out a pretty Tough uh, video and a tweet saying, you know, Kobe Bryant died 23 years too late. Uh, He raped somebody and this is a good day. Fuck the Lakers. Congrats to the helicopter pilot who didn't gas up the chopper or something like that. And I think when you step away from it, it, but you know, now he's getting death threats. He's basically, you know, he can't perform in certain places. He's, if he's on a lineup at a club in New York, that club gets bomb threats from Kobe fans, presumably. So whatever, an insane situation. And he was doing it as he puts it as a joke for his fans. Apparently whenever he, some famous person dies, he always goes and celebrates their death this way. But, there are a couple things um, that I want to say. And the first is, you know, in, in and of itself, Ari Shafir deserves to say whatever the fuck he wants to say. He can say, he, you cannot tell somebody in America that they can't say something. What you can say is, you can say that, you just have to be okay living with the consequences, Right? And the consequences now are, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, how it will affect his career. I'm pretty sure he's going to be fine. He, he may not be able to perform in LA for a while, you know, but, but dude, he's too good of a comic. I mean, you know, I look, I've been kind of keeping an eye on his like following. Yeah. It hasn't dipped that much. I don't know. I, same as you. I mean, the actual tweet, it's that when I saw it, Right, because I, I saw Michael Rappaport tweet it, retweet it, because Michael Rappaport was going crazy on off on him on uh-huh. Twitter when it first came out. I thought, I mean, first of all, the Kobe that day, I I will probably remember that day for a long time in my probably for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. just because Kobe was a big idol of mine growing up. I mean, I saw him during his prime, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was devastated that day. And then you see stuff like that, and look, whether he does that um, as that's his thing. You know that he's entitled. Of course, he's entitled to say what he wants, and he faces the repercussions. And, and I don't think he was aware of the repercussions that were coming. Um, I think. I think. Let me. Let me. Let me. Th- just, well, there's yeah. one. Th- there's one last thing. You're a comedian. Yeah. I like anything comedy related and funny under the fucking sun. I think like 
I'm a huge fan of Schultz. I think he can, he says, I went to his show. He could say the most fucked up shit in the world. But the thing about Schultz or Chappelle or any of these, they're funny. At the end of the day, if it's funny, it's funny, period. Mm-hmm. And I think that that deserve, and I think that canceling someone because they make a racist joke or they, it, it's a, if it's a joke, it's a joke. This, I didn't see the punchline. I didn't see anything funny about it, right? Not to mention the timing was pretty terrible. So in this situation, I'm like, you know, do I follow uh, Shafir's comedy that much? No, I don't. But um, do I think he deserves to never perform again? I also don't think that either. I think it was, I just, man, I just, it, it was it was honestly a really interesting moment to see like how I, comedians and people in that world are reacting because mm-hmm. I think um, I, I'm never for canceling anyone. I think this cancel culture is just ridiculous. Um but I think that this shed light on the fact it was just sad to see in that moment to see to even see someone say that period. Yeah, okay, sure. But you know, I I, I have to say, um, yeah, it's an insane thing that he said. It's insane. But it's also so insane that most sane people mm. shouldn't give it the time of day. Mm. Nor should they be uh, consumed by it right. or, or issue some kind of like fatwa on Ari Shafir. They should not be weaponizing and, and no. doxing him and doxing his parents. It's, it's fine if people just say, yes. fuck Ari Shafir. I never want to hear his comedy again right. and people quit him, 100%. right? But- I um, what I wrote in this piece I wrote for Pro Bible was like do do you really think Kobe would have wanted people to go kill this dude? No. Like Kobe Bryant was the ultimate silencer of crowds. Some of my favorite Kobe clips that I've gone back to watch are compilations of him hitting daggers in away arenas. And he seemed to thrive in Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden, in you know Boston Garden. I mean, the guy loved performing for against people that hated him. And uh, you know, you look back in at the rape allegation, and I remember in the wake of that, I remember him scoring like forty points a game, like fifteen straight games. It was as if he just played better when people hated him. Right. So I tend to believe that Kobe Bryant if he were still here to advise those people who are feeling as though they are enacting vengeance on right. his behalf against Ari Shafir, he would be like, what? No, rise I, above it. You know? I, I 100% agree with that. And I think, I think that the death threats, I mean, that's just way too far. That is just way too far. If, if you don't like, if you didn't appreciate that joke, which most didn't, then, then just don't follow him or don't, you know, don't watch his stuff or whatever. But to, Threats on his life, his parents. That's dead. crazy. I mean, that's abs- that that's is just crazy absurd. shit. I'm just more. I'm. I mean, I think it'll be interesting um, to see because there's like I think in this day and age, it's different levels of cancel culture. You know, like Louis C.K. was one. Uh, Harvey Weinstein's a, a, a fully different level. Yeah. And then you have this stuff, which is not really in the same Me Too era or anything like that, but it's still a different kind of like there's a, there's people that want to cancel him, and you know his I know yeah, his agency dude, dropped him. You just I just I don't know. I'm telling you, man. People aren't going to care. I've I've experienced this on a smaller level. People are not going to care about Ari Shafir in a month or two months. And and maybe this was, 
so sensitive that at the time period will be a little longer or whatever. But it's just it's just crazy to me that people care so much in that moment. Right. And then three weeks later, if you it wouldn't even be on their mind. And they mm. would they would have moved on to the next thing that they're gonna be angry about. Dude, for me, I got fired for writing an article in poor taste about a woman who had who had been killed. And I didn't know when I wrote the article that she was dead. I thought she was alive. I totally misread the sources that I was using and kind of made a lighthearted, you know, very careless, very low effort blog about this story. And, you know, look in hindsight, it it all looked bad. And there were people who emailed me and they would be like, whenever you apply to a job from now on, I'm going to find out and I'm going to email that place and make sure they know what a piece of shit you are. Oh. Uh, I had people, you know, telling me that I was the scum of the earth and that I was a vile person and, and just all this crazy shit. And I remember kind of just some of the emails I would respond to and just be like, I, I understand. I, I, you know, I, I understand and I apologize. That was all I could really say, right? And then three days later, all the Jeffrey Epstein news broke. Not that he had killed himself yet, but oh, that he right. had been, you know, flying underage prostitutes around and sex trafficking and all this crazy shit. And nobody cared. It was a Thanos finger snap of people mm who cared about me shifting them over to this other thing to be mad about that was so much worse than what I had done. Right, right. And in the moment, the internet, nobody has perspective. Nobody can rise above and look at it from a bird's eye view and be like, okay, here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. Uh, how, what is the proper way to react? Right. You know, everyone just fucking picks up their pickaxe or their fucking gun and says let's go let's march you know let's go find these people right, right. and it's like what where did that happen yeah why can't we take a beat and just say what is the proper thoughtful response to this there's nobody doing that anymore yeah, you're 100 right no i think uh yeah, I was just interested to see your take like from a comedian standpoint. Yeah, I'm um, always going to err on the side of the comedian. I, I right. you know, unfortunately that's my bias. I just think that like comedians are the last bastion of free speech, blah blah blah. Yeah. It's our duty to say the things that people are afraid to say and to right, play with right, topics right, right. that are very, you know, difficult to talk about. But uh at the same time what you said is very true, you know? I think you get more leeway and more support from comedians if what you've said is very funny. Right. And a great example would be like Louis C.K.'s 9-11 joke um, where he said, you know, the process of healing for me, I judged it based on how quickly I masturbated after the whole tragedy had happened. And for me, it was between the two towers being struck. And I always thought that was so brilliant and yeah. such a great, it's a 9-11 joke. Right. And this is, arguably the worst tragedy ever to befall America. Right. And uh, and I don't think anyone would ever be mad at him for that. Right. Just because it was funny. People get it. They're yeah. like, that's clearly a joke. Yeah. That's funny. We'll see. I think it'll be, I think it'll be really interesting to see. Um, I think it's, 
I, I don't even know if it's necessarily like the people that are just going to continue being mad, but it's more like, you know, if I'm a comedy club, it's like now if you put him on, you fear backlash and, you know, people are going to look out for themselves. Well, yeah. I mean, what's crazy is that like my home club, The Stand, they, they've started uh, throwing him up unannounced. Oh, really? Because if they put him on a lineup, right. people freak out. And do you know how, so has, has he gone, has he done clubs since? Oh, yeah, yeah. And has, do you know what the reaction has been from people? Do they give a fuck? Well, the, the crowd at The Stand is always pretty cool. I mean, they're just like, yeah. they know what they're getting themselves into. Right. It's an edgier club. It, the Legion of Skanks operates out of there. Um, and I think New York Comedy Club, I read, but I don't know for sure that they had like banned him forever, which if that's true, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. But I don't think Ari's going to, you know, he'll have to do some other stuff for a little bit. Louis. Just works in the South now. <laughs> Seriously. I know, I know. He's made, well, I hear he's that's making a comeback. He, yeah, but he, he, can't, he doesn't perform in New York. That's true. I haven't seen any. He lives in New York. Wow. And he won't go up on stage because when he goes to the cellar. I've met him a few times. Yeah. Wait, have you seen him recently? I've seen him four times in the last two weeks. You're lying. Twice was <laughs> wait, wait, what? totally random. Are you serious? Where? Once was in a Whole Foods. We were in the olive oil aisle. <laughs> And you, you, <laughs> you and Lou in the olive oil. Yeah, we're, we're, That's we're looking at olive oil. Wait, did you, did I, you talk I, to him? I said hi to him. Yeah. Well, because I had I had does met him. Wear, does he wear like like? Does he try to go undercover? Like no, no. But he's also pretty recognized. I mean, he's got the red hair look. He's yeah, but got, it's not red anymore. It's, not, it's like kind of gray now. He's, he's, he's probably aged he, a bit. if you didn't know him, you wouldn't really. You might not recognize him. Is he looking? He's always a little. He's lost some weight. He's but a I don't stress. I think yeah, it might be stress weight. But I've seen him at the stand too. He comes and just hangs out a little bit. Hang, he doesn't do sets though. No, because here's the problem. He'll go up. He was going up the cellar a couple times, and then there would be some fucking reporter in the room who oh, would man. write about how, you know, people got up and left, and it's an unsafe space. He was up in I think Canada doing some sets at a club, and some New Yorker writer went and saw him and shit all over his act and he's working out jokes i mean nobody is under the yeah. scrutiny that he is yeah and i'm not whatever defending what he did i, who, I whatever who, who cares I, it's not for me to care as a straight white male i get that <laughs> i'm not part of the offended party so my opinion doesn't matter at all but i think it is funny that he Ha, just goes to the south now, well, and that that's where that's that where it's funny. fine. That, <laughs> is, that is hilarious. That's Wait, just where, fine for him to perform. Where else there. did you see him in the? You saw you saw him four times last two weeks. Yeah, so twice was at the stands. So okay. those those are and like, he just like sits back and watches. No, he'll be hanging out at one of the tables with some of the guys. Okay, interesting. Yeah, or you know, comedians like I know Joe List opens for him, and Joe's Joe's are there all the time doing sets. Um, so yeah, he'll just come in. He came in with his dog, which was really cool. He had this beautiful, I think it was some kind of doodle, like golden doodle or something. And I liked, I patted the dog. And then I told Louie I, I loved him, which was too much <laughs> for a first meeting. Uh, but then in, I, in the ensuing two weeks, I, I ran into him in Whole Foods and then I saw him again. I saw him at the stand again with Bill Burr. Oh. And I always wanted, I so wanted to take That's a picture crazy. of the three of yeah. us, three redheaded comedians. <laughs> Two of whom had kind of been canceled and one, you know, who just refused to be canceled. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, those two guys are like my idols yeah. for sure. So, wow. Yeah. Pretty that's, surreal. That's insane. 
And we're going to take another quick break because I want to talk about my newest and latest sponsor, Tushy. Everybody in this world poops, so Tushy is for everyone. Wiping with dry toilet paper does not always get you clean. But I have a question for you guys. If you got poop on any other part of your body, would you just wipe it off with dry paper? No, you probably wouldn't. Thankfully, my friends over at Tushy created a new and sleek bidet attachment that clips into your existing toilet and sprays your butt with the same exact water you brush your teeth with. It's not that nasty toilet water, it's that clean, fresh water. This Tushy bidet is the best thing you can do for yourself. Tushy connects to the water supply behind your toilet and is super easy to use. The best part, it's that it's only $79 and it installs within 10 minutes. And even better, no plumbing or electricity is required. Go to hellotushy.com today, and when you use promo code WHERE, that's W-H-E-R-E, you will receive 10% off your next order. Again, go to hellotushy.com today, use that promo code WHERE, W-H-E-R-E, and you will receive 10% off your next order. And now let's get back into it. So back to your comedy, um... What's the next? I mean, you're third. You're thirty. Thirty. Yeah. Thirty on the dot. Yeah. Um, how do you do? You set goals for yourself. What do you What do you hope Francis Ellis comedy? Dude, are you at five, ten years down the line? It's a great question. Um, I used to. I Not used anymore. to set goals for myself, and then I would I would set goals for the upcoming year, and I would never hit them. And the problem was, something else good would happen but I couldn't celebrate it as much because it wasn't the thing that I had written out that I had hoped to achieve that year. Mm. And so these great serendipitous openings and these opportunities that present themselves all of a sudden lose their luster because it's not on this fucking vision board that you made on December 31st of the year before, right? So I kind of stopped doing that. Um, And... If I'm being honest, I'm trying to take a little bit more of a in-the-moment approach to uh, evaluating my career. And right now, I am making a very good salary. I get to work from home. I get to write whatever I want. I like the people I work for. I have good health care. My road dates, a lot of my club dates some of them sell out some of them I, I sell very well and that's pretty damn good mm-hmm. i was saying this to myself the other day like you know not to be too weird on the nose but i make more than a, like over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year to be a comedian wow in new york city if you had told me six years ago that that's where i would be here today i would have thought that was true success wow and so I have no complaints. Yeah, obviously you want to keep growing right. for sure. You know, I used to think like, well, I want to play theaters and I want a late night spot. I want to get past the cellar. And, you know, sure. I hope those things happen. Absolutely. But I don't know when or if they ever will. And for right now, where I'm at is, uh, you know, it, it took me getting fired to to... To have that perspective for sure. Yeah, that was the w- one thing that I, um, I'm glad you brought that up. How did, uh, you know, your experience at Barstool and, and I mean, there was, I don't want to say like public, I mean, yeah, it was public scrutiny at times. Um, you know, how does that influence you as a comedian and, and in your writing and what you're willing to touch on, maybe sometimes willing not to touch on? 
Like, how does that influence you, um, you know, in your current day brand of comedy? Well, I think it's just a matter of, of forcing myself to be a little smarter. You know, I think that uh, even you can touch on these hot button topics as long as you're very thoughtful and articulate about your position. Because it's hard for somebody to get really angry and reactive about a brilliantly written and mm. presented point of view. I think it's when people see a tweet that says, you know, fuck Kobe, right. that they get so mad. But if I were, but you know, I say that and yet the Gail King thing, who knows, dude? Because she was pretty level-headed in the way she mentioned that and then she was getting death threats from Snoop Dogg and shit. And it's like, well, maybe yeah. maybe it's just all or nothing. You know, you, I don't know. I think there's one thing also that I, that I wanted to ask you about um, that I think you do a really great job um, through social media, uh, just kind of promoting some of your, maybe whether it's podcasts or little uh, bits here and there. Um, who are people, you know, I mean, when I think about this next brand and next wave of comedy, the reality is whoever's making the best little Instagram, I mean, it's, it's gotten to this point where it's the best little Instagram clips, the best little stuff here and there um, is really starting to, see, and, and it's good. It has to be good first and then it also has to be well-marketed. Um, I know you're friends with Schultz. I mean, he's a master of that right now. Um, who are other guys that you feel like are uh, in that same ballpark and how meaningful and how much do you think about um, marketing from a from a comedic standpoint. Well, I mean, Schultz is kind of the guy who who changed everything. Yeah, and I think he will be looked back upon as somebody who really drove the industry in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, the biggest impact that he's having, I think, is is in the ownership over our material um, because. You know, five, ten years ago, if you if you wanted anybody to see your stand-up, you had to get a Comedy Central half hour or a late night set. And we were all beholden to the Bookers and the Just for Laughs Festival to get us out there. And now uh every comedian is his or her own startup. Right. And we have the means of production and you're either good or you're not. And if you're good, your shit should grow. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Schultz was definitely somebody that changed my way of thinking, especially from this idea of like, don't put your material online because you need to save it in case you get a special to give everything away for free and just keep writing such that if you do get a special, you'll be able to come up with the material for it. Right. Um, as far as other comedians go, I think a lot of comedians I admired either went step for step with him and were doing it at the same time or were influenced by him. Theo Vaughn uh, putting out his stand-up clips was a big reason that I really wanted to make sure we had a video component of our stand-up, of, of our podcast. Excuse me. Theo putting out his podcast clips was one of the big reasons I wanted to put out podcast clips. Um, you know, the Joe Rogan, all the all the clips I see from the Rogan um, that are so great that go viral on YouTube. I the biggest assets I have right now are my Instagram and my Twitter, and so I need to utilize those as much as I can to uh, 
get my work out there. To wrap things up. Well, let me just say this. Go ahead, say it. This is a good podcast. You're very good thank, at this. Thank you very much. That you're, means a lot. You're 20 years old. It doesn't make you have you have a uh, a composure and a preparedness that most com- uh, people do not have in podcasting. I, I, that means a lot. Thank you so much. I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. Thank you. Yeah. So to wrap things up, though. Yeah. When people think about Francis Ellis, Francis Ellis comedy, if you want to, maybe a legacy. All right, let's let's go. Let's let's shoot. Let's shoot like 30, 40 years. I said five, ten. Fuck yeah. that. Give me forty years down the line. Uh huh. Do you, is there a way that you hope to be remembered? Yeah, sure. I think um, I, I'd like to be remembered as being a, a, a smart comedian, mm. someone who didn't just do obvious stuff or low hanging fruit stuff, but actually through comedy maybe influenced the way that people saw things or looked at things because I think the great comedians that I love have done that. You know, you could argue that George Carlin was just as much of a philosopher as he was a comedian. Uh, and I don't, I don't aspire to, to those heights, but you know, I, I imagine I'll write a book, maybe a few, and I would like for people to enjoy it just as much for its humor as for its, uh, well-crafted thought and uh, and language, you know, stuff stuff like that. Beautiful. Yeah. You can uh, you can follow Francis on Twitter at Francis C Ellis, on Instagram at Francis C C yeah, Ellis. A, yeah, I, I made a mistake, but uh, it's a, it, it's that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Website, great website, uh, FrancisEllis.com. There you can find a whole lot of good good information about yourself. Nice. Um, you have the Oops podcast mm-hmm. with Julio Gallarotti. Yep. Um, you can listen to that virtually anywhere. Um, there's one date I know on your website that we talked about earlier, Skankfest, um, March 27th, 29th in Houston, yeah. Texas. I don't know if there's any other things you want to tell the masses. Yeah, I'll be at Moon Tower Comedy Festival uh, the last weekend of April, I think, um, in uh, Austin, Texas. And then May 15th to the 17th, I'll be at Brouhaha in Hartford, Connecticut. And then I will also be at um, Wise Guys in Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, uh, May 7th to the 9th. Perfect. Before that, yeah. And then even before I, I let you go, there's one other thing that I forgot to tell you. Oh, okay. I saw, I had uh, the lovely Hannah Burner on here. Oh, yeah, she's great. Um, and I saw, and I saw, I think it was either your story or her story. You guys played tennis recently. Yeah, we play. And, and I told Hannah, so Hannah, I don't, I don't know. You don't know this. Hannah and I went to the same high school. No we, way. We, went to the, we played under the same tennis coach because I played tennis. I wasn't like, I didn't play. Uh, I, I kind of stopped after high school, but we still, I mean, our, our our high school team, I don't know if she ever talked to you about it, was one of the best in the country. No way. Um, And I saw- Wait, where are you guys from? I'm from Brooklyn. She's from Brooklyn. Or she's from, yeah, she grew up in, well, her mom was, her mom, her mom was the principal of my middle school. Unbelievable. I've met her mom a few times. Lovely lady. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I saw your forehand. It's good. Hey, it, it I, don't, me, I don't profess to I, be a great tennis player. But I was thinking, I was, you know, if you ever want to hit, let's do it, man. <laughs> I'm down. Let's do it. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> but uh, no, in, in all seriousness. Um, she's good. She's, she, she's good. good. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I challenged her. But uh, I, I feel like she thinks that I'm not, I, she, I feel like she thinks I'm not legit. I'm going to go on a limb and say it. But I mm. want to, Hannah, if you're listening, which you're probably not, but- uh, 
challenge you again. But uh, no, in all seriousness, um, thank you so much for taking the time. Dude, my um, pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you on. I uh, wish you absolutely nothing but the best. Felix. And, uh, Francis. <laughs> what a blast. And I, uh, I'm going to come and see you at the Stanways. Hell yeah. Check it out. Beautiful. Francis, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.